Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Nuni de meni pistis elpis agape tatria tafta midzon de tuton e agape. For many seminarians, whether you'd like to or not, you've got to learn Hebrew and Greek. But even if it's not required, what's the value of learning the biblical languages? That's what we're talking about Hayom on Surviving Seminary. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Kevin Sutherland, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Stark. Hello. And we've just spoken to you in Hebrew and Greek. Um, I spoke to you in with 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, which is the now uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And I spoke to you from Deuteronomy 6.4 a verse that we all know and love, the Shema. Yes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. <laughs> you go read that. You know, you're you're in line with a long line of <laughs> right. interpreters that want to know how to translate this right. verse. Yes. Um, no, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, or one of many other different choices as to how people translate it. Yes, there are. There are uh, big debates about this. So I feel like we're, um, we've, uh, you think we've held back long enough on ourselves before we could actually do this episode. Yes. We've been like two, two hounds kept at bay <laughs> right. on a leash, trying not to do an episode about biblical languages. Yes. And we just can't, we just can't hold it anymore. Yes. That's, uh, if you don't know us personally, that's me and Jason's like big passions is Hebrew and Greek, uh, and learning the language and, Spending a lot and a lot of time on the the act, actual practice of the languages. Is that what brought you to New Testament studies, do you think? No. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I kind of wanted to become a biblical language person a long time ago. I used to do a lot of, like, talking with people and maybe something like apologetics. Um, and originally came and I was like, I don't want any theology. I just want to be able to look at Greek and Hebrew and be able to cut out all of the middlemen between me and Jesus. <laughs> so uh, I have since matured um, about all of that, but uh, it's still got a very special place in my heart. What about you? Um, I would say that Hebrew is what drew me to Old Testament studies in particular. I don't know if I'm in a place where... I, I just got through with my first year of coursework, and... I, what I'm realizing is that the the paths and potential ways to go are many. Yeah. And not, first year of PhD coursework. This isn't your first rodeo with Hebrew. Oh, but. sorry. Yes. No, I started Hebrew uh, during my MDiv, and I didn't really put it down. Yeah. Uh, I started it early, I should say, and didn't put it down hardly um, throughout the course of it, except for when I was doing Greek. Mm-hmm. But um, I've learned after one year of coursework and PhD just how many different ways there are to go in Old Testament studies. And um, I mean, I would say that just about every one of them obviously involves Hebrew, but in terms of like a deep need to go into Hebrew study of the language itself as the discipline, I'm kind of seeing that there's a lot more to choose from. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And at any rate, I started that way, feeling like that was where I want to go, and I'm not quite sure at the moment. But um, on the other hand, using that desire to keep learning Hebrew, even if I don't go into the study of Hebrew as like my field, then I've still got a lot of tools that I've put in the toolbox because of that yes. past and that history. Yes. And uh, so we've been doing the biblical languages for a while, right? Yeah, and we're going to be kind of like um, poster children for, you know, just loving Hebrew and loving Greek. And yes. and I suppose if we could, Woo-hoo. we would tell everybody, you should take as much Hebrew and as much Greek as you oh, can, yeah. you know, but yes. um, obviously this episode is not quite geared toward that. Um, when we talk about our love for Hebrew and Greek, that that's not the same love that everybody has for yes. Hebrew and Greek. We are fanboys, for sure. And more than that, um, even more drastic, there are people out there who are not only um, not fanboys or fangirls for Hebrew and Greek, but they don't even uh, have any interest in it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to take it, yep. um, and, and they feel like it's not going to be relevant to them. So yeah, so let's talk about why why someone might not want to take biblical Hebrew and Greek before we just start singing the praises that we're more prone to do. Yeah, I mean, because in spite of your lack of desire out there, listener, uh, to take biblical languages, you may, as we hinted at in our opener, be required to do so for your degree. Yeah. Uh, so there there won't be any getting out of it. Mm-hmm. But some why some people might not you know, want to or might not be able to is, for one thing, it might not be required for your particular seminary degree or relevant for your degree. Like I'm thinking about counseling, there may not be much need for a counseling person to know that unless they're trying to do like a, maybe an understanding of like a particular emotion through a Hebrew language. Yeah. And we're not like trying to pick on counseling students or anything like that. It's just kind of a plain fact that in your applying your calling um, applying yourself to your calling, you're probably not going to have much need for that. Yeah. And there are probably plenty of um, local pastors out there who are very busy and who are very bogged down with so many responsibilities, and just the thought of delving into the original language text is probably pretty um, pretty unrealistic to them. And part of the reason on that is because language study is hard. It's not... Uh well, it's something that babies do in their own language, but the thing about being a baby is you get exposed to millions of more uh, interactions in a particular language that's your native tongue than you would in a second language, per se. Language study is hard, mm-hmm. and if it's a requirement for you to take Hebrew and Greek, you're going to be um, you're going to be studying yeah a lot, and sometimes um, that seems like more than it's worth. Yeah, uh, definitely because. There are going to be times, um, this gets to my third point, that you're going to struggle to see whether it's worth it or not um, when you're sitting there trying to figure out a different parsing. And when we say parsing, that's like you're labeling all of these different parts of this noun, that it's a nominative singular masculine noun from this root, meaning this and all of these things. Um, And there might become points where you're like going, how is this going to help me in ministry? And it will, but you have to go through those times. And those are some reasons why people might not want to deal with that. Yeah, it's an investment. Mm-hmm. And it's going to feel like at the outset, like, when's the payoff? Yes. And we do want, we want easy answers and we want easy solutions to things just because I think it's in our our nature as yes. human beings. 
So now that we've talked about maybe why you uh, wouldn't want to do biblical languages in Greek, now that we've gotten the uh, caveats out of the way and we can get to our true... Are you sure there aren't going to be more caveats throughout this episode? (laughs) Well, I'm sure there might be, but uh, let's talk about why. Why would you want to do this? One thing I want to, before we get into this, is I want to give credit. um, One of our uh, faculty members here, Dr. Frederick J. Long, um, has a video. If you go to grksociety.com, um, you can, that's our Gamma Rho Kappa. It's an international Greek honor society. And he's got a video up there uh, that about why learning Greek matters. And I kind of took and massaged some of the points that are coming from there. They're pretty standard. So I'm sure there are a lot of other people that I could cite as giving some of these examples, but we're going to go over some of these on there. There's an Italian proverb, and I don't speak Italian, so I might be butchering this, but it's tradutore, traditore, uh, which basically roughly translates out to translator, trader. Um, and it's this idea that when you translate something, you betray a sim- a s- some of the sense of what's going on there. Now, it's not going to be usually a very dramatic, although you know there can be times where a mistranslation can have drastic consequences. But in some very real sense, you can't quite get from uh, Hebrew into English everything that goes in there or everything from Greek into English quite the same way. And the reason for that is because getting into the second point, words uh, don't mean exactly the same thing from one language and culture to another. What's a good example of that? I was trying to follow that point a little bit. What, do, what would you What would you say is kind of the, what's in your mind for that? Well, so in some of this, uh, you know, you have like different cultural expectations. Like I was thinking about the the difference between a dog, like our little quadruped friends in America. Um, you know, dogs can be a mixed bag, but they have good qualities. You know, a lot of times when you ask someone what they think about with a dog, they might think faithful or loyal or friendly. Um, especially in comparison to a cat or whatnot, and not to poo-poo on cat people here. But um, but for an ancient Hebrew, though, dogs tended to be kind of unclean animals. So if you called someone a dog in there, it might mean something a little bit different than if you called someone a dog in English in the 21st century. Maybe. Which, Depending if, on the slang level right. and how you spell dog. Yeah, D-A-W-G or D-O-G. Uh, D-O-double-G. <laughs> But or if you're even just talking about uh, the dog as a symbol that, you know, just the fact that if you're not even if you're not calling someone a dog, because that obviously tends to be a negative thing if it's a D.O.G. dog. But um, just thinking about dogs in general, um, they they evoke might evoke a different sense between one culture and another. Um, And then there's the whole thing that people have probably heard in your sermon at least once in your life of the four different types of love in Greek and yeah. whatnot. The place where it goes off the rails is when people try to say, therefore, agape love always means this kind of love. And maybe the, they're not... The God-type love is what a lot of people will say. And we're not just ba- you know, not just basing it on that particular passage, but categorizing it into something like that, when really agape is used in many different contexts, and sometimes contexts that are not godly at oh, yeah. all situationally. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, uh, 
you know, he says something to the line of, you love your, those who love you. What credit is that to you? Even the tax collectors and the sinners do that, and they're using agapo. So these are people that shouldn't have that kind of love of God running through their life kind of a thing. And in fact, Jesus is critiquing agape at that level right there. So it's not always the God kind of love. And so, um, yeah, words don't mean exactly the same thing from one language and culture over to another. And um, just the fact is that when you start reading a translation, you're reading something that is is accurate, and a lot of been wor- a lot of work has been put into it uh, in order to produce the translation that you're reading. But it can't be 100. percent And a lot of times. Uh, what we read in an English translation, if we're not careful, we start reading our own ideas from our own culture back into that English translation because we're not making the connections that I think are really the things that are kind of being smoothed over by an English translation. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that sometimes there are textual difficulties Mm -hmm. um, and that gets into like higher study kind of stuff and more in-depth study, but like sometimes there are textual difficulties that if you're looking at it in Hebrew or Greek, uh, you can say, like, what is, what's going on here? And yet, in an English translation, they've worked hard to kind of smooth that out. Yeah, so they've already entered a level of interpretation. Even if they're trying to lend, render it as literally as possible, there's just no way to make it 100% accurate, because Greek and English are not codes in themselves to where one thing equals exactly one only thing in the other language. And like this, this whole example of love again in English, we can say we love our spouse and we love tacos. And love tends to have this emotional quality that uh, doesn't seem as prevalent in biblical languages. Like love, there is like what you're doing for someone else, and you know whether or not you're expecting something back or it's an equal exchange can kind of flavor what kind of love this is. But it's not as emotionally driven in most contexts on there. Or the idea of love and fear, God being the object of that, say like in Deuteronomy, yeah. of having to do with like allegiance mm-hmm. and and swearing oneself over uh, to God in allegiance to him rather than like a an emotional kind of thing. Yeah. Not that that's not, not that that can't be included in our devotion to God, obviously it should, right. but the idea that the word usage, for example, um, isn't it, that's not really what it's hitting at yeah. primarily. Yeah. It's not saying feel good about God. It's, you know, it's saying, you know, be devoted to him like a family member might be to another family member or whatnot. So um, learning biblical languages can get you a step closer to um, getting some of those things, grasping some of those things and avoiding misunderstandings, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll get into a little bit um, down down the way here in the episode, the the idea that it's not just about like one semester and you can check that off the list and you're good to go. I mean, it takes some time, yeah. but at least having a little bit of experience anyway might get you a, a little bit closer to avoiding some misunderstandings and some pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so kind of related to that uh, with this idea of word studies, um, Like a lot of times, if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, there are people, there are pastors that are really rusty on their biblical languages and they might do a word study, quote unquote. Um, And it might come out kind of uh, wonky or whatnot. And I cringe. I 
I really don't like it when pastors say, well, the biblical Greek or the biblical Hebrew means this. Um, because what you learn when you learn Greek and Hebrew and any language is that you learn that words have ranges of meaning. And so a word study will not be, it can help you narrow down a little bit, but oftentimes the value in a word study is it narrows out what it can't be. You can find out that this can't be like this part of what I think of, like in the love example, it can't be this, um, but it can be these four or five different things. I don't want to mention a person specifically on this, but I do have a story about this from very recently where, well, recently meaning within the last few years, mm-hmm. where the sermon was about Genesis 1 and God seeing that it was good, and mm-hmm. all the times where God says, God saw that, it, where it says God saw that it was good. And this this happened where um, the preacher just kind of brought out, it's like kind of like he just flipped open the lexicon to the mm-hmm. word, which is tov, uh, for good, and just kind of rattled off the, I don't know, two dozen or so or more. I, I don't I don't know how many glosses you can have for for Tove, but mm. he just kind of rattled them all out. And it was just it was as if he was indicating that when you read in Genesis one and God saw that it was good, that it was every single one of those things. Right. All at once. All at once. That's 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 got its that fallacy has its own name for it, which I won't go into. But the question is not what are all the possible meanings, and then we just kind of shoehorn all of those meanings into that word in that particular place. It's right. what does that word in that particular place mean in context? Because yes. the context is key to determining how you define the word. Yeah. So yeah, as. As I said, um, on the one side, it will help you find this whole range of meaning and what it can't mean. But you'll also, as you're doing these word studies, you'll realize maybe if there's a certain group of similar words related, then it's got to kind of mean this or whatnot. And these are things that you can't really get uh, a good handle on if you don't have a little bit of working knowledge of how Greek and Hebrew work as a language. You can't just come in with your Strong's concordance and your... uh, you know, your basic dictionary and tell us that this word means this, uh, because more often than not, you're going to be a little bit off. And I'll say that, you know, plenty of people out there, you know, you can learn to do a word study that is primarily working with English text. Mm-hmm. You can do it, but you would need tools like a, like a Strong's Concordance or other similar concordance. You would need a lexicon, not an English dictionary, because that gets into our whole thing about um, importing meanings from our own language into the biblical languages. Yep. But, you know, it's possible to do word studies um, without having taken in-depth study into biblical languages, but it, it certainly will enhance those word studies if you do have that experience. Then moving up a notch, um, there's a new field that uh, I'm excited about. Uh, it's called discourse pragmatics, but it's uh, and discourse grammar but we're looking at um, how conjunctions work. And just like in English, if you really stop and think about it, the words you use uh, that are the conjunctions like and and but and um, that or in order that as one big phrase or whatnot, all kind of convey these different ideas that help you make sense of one sentence or clause versus another. And so getting that in there... um, and learning the language itself is where you're going to start realizing that. And you can kind of see how the Greek author has, or the Hebrew author, they've got this in Hebrew as well, um, 
how they've uh, formed the sentences and clauses together in such a way that it kind of helps lead you on to, I'm thinking of this clause as being the purpose for this clause, or this clause is the cause of that clause, or whatnot on there. Or this clause is formed in such a way that it's continuing the narrative, mm-hmm. whereas this one next to it is actually providing like kind of like background information yeah. that's not... It's not like the next event in the story. Mm-hmm. It just kind of exists there in the reality of the story, and yet the clause is showing that it's not like, and then this happened. Right. Like, stuff like that. Yeah. Which, that, that all kind of gets kind of into the weeds, um, and if you're, if you're required to take one or two semesters of, of a particular biblical language— um, You're probably not going to get into that a whole lot. Not a whole lot, but a little bit, especially depending on the grammar. You were talking about Dr. Long and his mm-hmm. grammar— um, offers like everything you ever wanted to and didn't want to know. Right. It's very thick. Yes. Um, but uh, another benefit is that you can access a whole new level of stuff that's contained in biblical commentaries if you have experience with biblical languages. There are, um, there are different kinds of commentaries out yeah. there, and mm-hmm. some are more simplified and just a little bit more expositional of themes and 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 um yeah thematic elements and things like that and don't really get too deep into the language um and exegetical aspects of the language but there are other commentaries which get very highly technical and if you're a local pastor and you've got to preach every week odds are you're probably going to want to uh, consult some commentaries in the process of your sermon prep. And you want to have a nice wide range of access to what you can uh, look at as far as what kind of commentary it is. And you don't want to have these commentaries closed off to you because they're so technical as far as the original languages go, and you just can't make head or tail of that. Yeah. And then the other flip side of that is that knowing Greek and Hebrew might help you realize... uh, which of the two, like two or three commentaries you've got, have a better case from a linguistic standpoint? Um, because you know, not everyone's got the same level of Greek, and that even goes with commentators, especially more yeah, popular level yeah. ones. And you can kind of say, "Yeah, I don't know if this one's quite on the money or whatnot." And think of how that'll feel, you yes. know, when you can be in a place where you can rightly discern um, what you're looking at in terms of these experts who are creating these commentaries where you can say, you know, I know a little bit of something myself and I don't agree with this because fill in the blank. Yeah. Maybe they're not paying attention to this conjunction that we just talked about and because maybe they're not aware of it or whatnot. Right. Maybe the commentary is getting outdated and maybe the field has kind of moved along Yeah, and you can be in touch with that. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's what we might call patterns of meaning that you can pick up um, when you're, reading the the biblical language text that you maybe can't pick up in English because, um, again, words don't mean exactly the same thing from one to another. So in English, it may not make sense to translate a certain word the same every single time because there's contextual things um, that you don't want to do that. But if you get into Hebrew or Greek, they may be able to use the same word multiple times in different ways uh, at least for our English-speaking brain to do. So that will get all lost on you if you're just reading the translation. Again, it's not going to change the meaning of the text. Like, you'll get the gist of it and the guts of the text in English. But there's just something that will drive it home if you're constantly seeing the same word 
going over and over and over again, which in English, and especially because uh, literate cultures, we don't like to repeat the same word multiple times. It doesn't sound good to say, I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and I did that, and I did this. Um, but uh, in in an oral culture, and especially in these languages, you can see these patterns, and you can feel a little bit more of the emphasis, maybe, of where the author is driving it at that you can't necessarily see in English. Yeah, and I would say, I would add to that in, say, for Hebrew, when you're looking at poetic texts or prophetic texts, the opportunity for wordplay and the instances of wordplay go up um, uh, to a very high degree as compared to, like, regular narrative, say regular, Mm -hmm. in comparison to narrative texts. Yeah. And those are things that aren't really going to make it through unless the translator is, like, really skilled. Yeah and can figure out a way to translate it into English and yet still preserve some aspect of wordplay. Um, And if you are familiar with the biblical languages, uh, then that gives you a better shot at catching those things and appreciating kind of like the aesthetic value, whether you bring it out in the sermon um, or whether you're using it for your study. Yeah. And speaking of aesthetics, um, you know, we tend in at least I do, and I think a lot of people in the Western culture tend to be very utilitarian and we want to get things done and we want to we want to get our Greek or Hebrew so that we can read the text and that's about it. But there is a very real beauty to the way this was composed. Um, and in lots of places, there's just subtle things um, in there that, um, you don't catch if you're not uh, reading um, in the biblical languages. So one example I wanted to bring out real quick was 1 Timothy 3.16, and I'll read it in the New American Standard uh, Bible first. Um, And it's this hymn, and it says, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, in Greek... Um, I mean, in English, you can tell there's kind of these there's these past participles. That's the ed verbs like uh, revealed, vindicated. But we also have seen in English, and we have proclaimed and believed and taken up. Um, but in Greek, when I'm going to read these in Greek, and you're going to hear this repeating pattern, this they in. Stay with us, people. Yes, stay with us. Um, I'll let Jason, who is a much uh, better <laughs> no, and Jason, why don't you take that away? <laughs> All right. And um, also know that we're both using uh, what's known as Koine Era pronunciation. It's kind of a recent innovation as far as Greek pronunciation. So if you get to your Greek class one day and then come back to us and listen to this episode and you're like, hey, you said it wrong, uh, it might just be that you're dealing with a different pronunciation schema. So bear with me. Os epanerote en sarki edikeote en pnevmati ofte angelus ekerukte en etnesin episteute en cosmo anelemte en doxe. Thank you, Jason, for that rousing rendition. But if you could hear that, even without knowing Greek, you could hear that the in. And there's only one uh, line in there. It's the ofte angelus that uh, doesn't have an in, and that's because angels angelus kind of has an in sound at the beginning of it, although it's on. Um, 
And there's debate about why there isn't one in there, but you have this thin sound. And you know what strikes me about this? It illustrates in English in the uh, NS, NASB we've got in, in, by, among, in, and in. Yeah, I was noticing that they're all different in the English. Yeah, they're but in in Greek it's all in because in. if you said proclaimed in the nations, that's not quite. Um, the right idiom for English. It doesn't make as much sense as proclaimed among the nations because that's a more that's closer to English. Or seen in angels. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is that also if we try to translate that preposition in Greek as in all the time, then we'll realize quickly that these prepositions can mean different things. They can have a wider range, like you were talking about before, Kevin. Yeah, and so there's there's just that beauty of the. There's like this ending of each of these verbs and this uh, preposition that repeats itself in every single one of these lines that, yes, it, it's not going to make a ton of difference uh, in your understanding of the passage, but it's just going to make it sound really pretty whenever you hear it. Another example of an aesthetic piece is the fact that word order in biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew is flexible, whereas it's not so flexible in English. In English, we like to have subjects before verbs and whatnot on this. And so I was going to give this example in John 3, 6. This is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and uh, it just said that he has to be born from above, and uh, Nicodemus is, you know, asks him, how can someone be go, go back into their mother's womb and be born again? But in the New American Standard Version on this, we have that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you already see there's some parallelism going on here that you can get from there. But there's just a little bit more nuance in the Greek. Um, and I'm going to try to pronounce this this time, but we have to gegenemenon ek te sarkos sarks esten ke to gegenemenon ek to Penefmatos penefma estin. Now, if you, I know you don't know Greek or Hebrew, probably if you're listening to us, uh, and this is a real concern for you, but gegenemanon, uh, and that's a, a fun one to say, um, that means that which is born uh, in that uh, New American Standard translation. And the estin at the very end of each clause are the two verb, verbal forms um, is. And they sandwich in the middle the things that are born. So it's sarkos, sarks, so flesh, of flesh, flesh. And then on the uh, spirit one, panefmatos, panefma. So spirit, spirit. So there's just this pattern that you see here where you have kind of verbs sandwiching the two things that you can't have in English because in English we would want to have the is before uh, the second, uh, whatever it is, flesh or spirit. Um, And so that's just something that gets taken out. And again, that's not going to change the meaning so much, but it just kind of shows there's a little bit of an aesthetic artistry in here. And um, the same can happen in Hebrew, and that doesn't just have to be in poetic and 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 prophetic texts or things like that. It can happen just straight up in narrative where you have the word order switched around in order to emphasize different things. And that's what's going on here. Different things are being placed into focus mm-hmm. um, in order for the reader or the listener to take a certain meaning from it. I mean, we've talked about meaning when it comes to the definitions of words and things, but there's meaning that comes out of the way that words are ordered. Yes, English, an English translation will 
either not be able to put the word order in that way because English doesn't work like that, yeah. or the translators will choose not to do it that way, and they'll choose to place it into a more standard word order. Mm-hmm. But what's lying underneath the surface of that in the original text is a word order that brings out a certain flavor of meaning in what's being said. Yep. And if uh, whether it's aesthetic or whether it's to um, place certain things in the text into focus that the that the writer of that um, of that passage was was putting out there, uh, that's something that's going to be missed unless you start to dig a little bit and get a little bit of access to biblical languages. Yep. A lot of that stuff that we're talking about. We gave you a lot of details and a lot of examples and stuff, and if you're not even in biblical languages yet and even wondering if you want to take them, some of that stuff might feel like that's a little much, you know? Yeah. And I guess that's kind of our, um, that's kind of our issue. Yes, because we, we love are, this stuff. We are crazy about it, so if you're not that qu- quite there, we understand if you need a little break. Yeah, so sorry if we scared you. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you're still listening, then we want to talk about some some things that are prep steps that you can do, because if you're required to take this stuff, you got to take it. If it's required for your degree, you got to uh, buckle down at some point and, and get into it. But it doesn't just have to be you on your own. We can offer you some advice. Yep. And even if you don't want, you don't have to take it, these are still ways, or you're wanting to take it, these are still things that you can do to make your transition over to a biblical language easier. And we're thinking in terms of advice for before you start. Um, advice for during and advice also for after you're through with your coursework in that subject. Yep. So what about the bef- the, por- the before steps, the pre-preparation, Kevin? Well, one thing, obviously, you need to do, assess what, uh, what you're going to do with the language in terms of, you know, is how much of this language is required from you. It's going to help you kind of plan out how much effort you're going to put into this. Yeah, it's like the baseline level. Yeah. What do you have to do in order to in order to pass your, you know, to achieve your degree mm-hmm. outcome? Um at our seminary, if you're an MDiv student, then you have to take one semester of Greek and you have to take one semester of Hebrew. Yes. And that's also the case for several other degrees. There are some degrees that don't actually require those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got to determine that. Yep. Um obviously if, if it's not part of your degree then then, you know, um but you still might want to. But determine what your what your absolute requirements are first as a baseline. Yep. And then you need to kind of figure out what is how much of your passion or your interests are going to align with you learning Greek and Hebrew and or biblical Aramaic, which is the third language that no one talks about a lot. It's yeah, it's the unappreciated third wheel. It's about two percent of the Old Testament. Maybe yeah. that's why it's unappreciated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, because if you have only a one semester requirement, yet your passion exceeds the one semester range, yeah. then that'll help you determine, say, am I going to want to take two semesters about this? And to a certain degree, you kind of have to, you might not know what your level of passion is fully until you're in the midst of it. That's yeah. kind of my story where it was in the middle of Hebrew 1, where I kind of had to say, I really like this. I think I want to take Hebrew too, but I couldn't say that until I was kind of in there. So mm-hmm. there is a certain sense in which uh, you can't know it all right at the beginning. But if, like, I came to seminary really interested in biblical languages. Yeah. So I had a feeling that yeah. I was going to be continuing on past the the baseline requirements. 
If on the other hand, you are really like not excited at all, not enthusiastic at all, and yet you still have to take that one semester, um, to say nothing of if you had a requirement of, of two semesters of a particular language, yeah. how many schools are there out there right now that actually have that kind of requirement? Uh, it's getting less and less that you're required to do biblical languages for a lot of these degrees, um, which, you know, depending on how hardcore you are in the old school, you might, you know, be the grumpy person on the porch saying, back in my day. Oh, and uh, at the same time, like if you're taking, say, if you're here taking a master's of arts, biblical studies, yeah. actually you do have to take two semesters. Yeah. You know? But again, that's degree specific. But... um that's a digression. And I guess if you are finding that your enthusiasm level is really low, and yet you have to take a semester of Greek or a semester of Hebrew, then that'll help you kind of get yourself oriented to how this, um, how you're going to have to respond to that, and how you're going to have to motivate yourself mm-hmm. to be part, to, to get into it. Yep. And then the other thing you'd want to keep in mind would be your end goal. Like if you want to be a, you know, maybe a pastor somewhere and you're wanting to preach sermons that are engaged with the biblical text and are as accurate as possible, then you might need to go beyond even what's required. If like in our own seminary here, if you're only taking one semester of Greek, you're only going to get through maybe uh, some of the biggest sets of the verbal systems, but there's going to be a whole lot of stuff you don't know anything about. Um, So if you're going to want to be in touch with this later on in your life, you might have to take beyond what's required of you. Right. I think those three things together um, are a really good thing to assess for yourself. What are your minimum requirements? What's your level of passion and interest? And then what is your end goal? I think those three things can really play off of one another as you think about them to understand how you should go about your, your language learning requirements. Yes. Also, as another pre-prep step, and this is kind of getting into... Uh, the languages like right on the cusp, we do recommend that you learn in in advance the alphabet that you're going to be dealing with. Yeah, that's either the Greek alphabet, or in the case of Hebrew, there's its alphabet, but also there's the set of vowel points mm-hmm. that go along with it. I can't recommend highly enough that before you get in, you should take a look at those and try to get them down because that's like the first week's material right there. Yeah. It's just learning the alphabet. And if you can get that done, if you can clear that hurdle, that's a major hurdle to have to clear. And it will just clear the way for you to start your, to start concentrating on really important stuff. Yeah. And it's a huge hurdle. I remember the first time I ever encountered Greek, which was the first language I learned. Uh, and it was just like, I don't even recommend, I mean, I had learned French and Spanish and all this, but they all use the same characters. But Greek and Hebrew, they use their own characters. And so, you're going to have to, like, there's no, there's there's some, but there's not a whole lot of easy transition between what you're used to most likely and what it looks like in the text. Um, but it is so basic, you have to have this before you can move on to more uh, detailed and um, more important matters. So if you don't get it here uh, in that first week, it's just going to get harder and harder to catch up um, when you're still trying to figure out, is this a hey or a chet? One other thing um, you need to do uh, before you learn 
um, Hebrew or Greek that will pay dividends is to learn your own native grammar mm-hmm. or you know, for most of us, um, that'll be English, uh, or that'll be the language if you're studying in, you know, the United States or the UK that you will be forced to learn Greek or Hebrew through, even if you speak another language. But you, one of the things that makes language learning so difficult, if it's your first language that you're learning, is that you have to learn a second language, a meta language of what kind of box does this word fit in? Is this an adverb? What does an adverb mean? What is a participle? What is, you know, an infinitive? And if you can learn those things in your own language and have a good, clear definition in English of what these different concepts are, then that will pay huge dividends because you're only really then learning, oh, this is an adverb and I put it in my adverb box. Whereas a lot of people coming in that we don't do a lot in, you know, in the United States of America, we don't do a lot of grammar training. Um, and so they're having to learn, you know, not just Greek or Hebrew, they're also learning what all these different parts of speech are. So I want, I like took to biblical languages like a duck in water. Uh, and that was because of Mrs. Atkinson in the 10th grade that made us learn all of these uh, like gerunds and infinitives and participles and whatnot. You're lucky. Yes. And so I I thank her. And if she's still alive, thank you so much, Mrs. Atkinson. Maybe uh, she's listening to the podcast right now. I don't think so, but maybe. Uh, but she was uh, instrumental in me being able to pick up languages very easily because I already had very clear boxes of what all these different parts of speech were. No, you're lucky because, like, I think I had to learn those things as I was going through Hebrew. Yeah, um, yeah, I had to, I had to kind of fill those definitions in as I went. Not all of them. I mean, I know what an adjective is, right? But um, yeah, I, I had no idea what a participle was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what an infinitive was, and so I had to learn those things in the midst of it. But um, that did create for me like a real framework for learning languages in general. Yeah. And so once I got to Greek, it was like, it felt like half the battle was already done. Yeah. Because I knew, I had all these boxes that I knew what fit into what. Mm-hmm. I just had to learn the forms and learn the words. Yeah. So um, once you're in the midst of your study, then obviously there are plenty of tips we can give for you when you're in the midst of your coursework, such as... Um, do your homework, go to class, um, all those things. But there are also other little things that'll help you out. Um, what are some of those things, Kevin? Well, uh, you know, one thing would be getting help. Um, there may be different aspects of the language that you have picked up on that your classmate has not, and maybe they've picked up on other things that you haven't. So being able to bounce those off of another person that's going through the process with you, or maybe even more of an expert that already has worked through these a little bit. Yeah, and don't be afraid to do that either. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously they can't take your tests for you. Right. Um, but this is a lot different from a course in which you have a lot of discussion in class about a topic, and then you have to write papers about it and things like that. This is like you know, I mean, think back to like math class where you have to study up on the formulas and take the test and pass the test. I mean, it's back into that kind of environment. Yeah. And in the meantime, out of class, you can talk with people, you can get help from them and bank on on one another's progress. Yeah. Or it, you can help them. Yeah. And it's really unique because it's it's a lot harder to plagiarize 
when you're learning language because everybody calls it an adjective. I mean, there are ways to do that if you get down in the weeds. Uh, but I mean, so you're not going to like, it's, it's a lot harder to get into unethical waters when you're collaborating with people, when you're learning Hebrew or Greek, I mean, short of taking the test for them or whatnot, you can't really go wrong there. And I'll say that most instructors are going to say, you know, get together guys and gals, sorry, I did it again. Um, Gender neutral guys. Get together and study together. Yeah. I'd say that any professor would encourage study groups, encourage reading groups, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Another thing would be practicing reading in the biblical text. Um, Obviously, you're kind of probably not going to understand a lot of what you're pronouncing, but reading out of the the Bible in Greek and in Hebrew while you're in the midst of your study, it's another way to keep refamiliarizing yourself with the sounds and with the endings of different parts of speech and uh, all the different forms. You're engaging more than just your eyes and your brain. Mm-hmm. You're getting your mouth and your ears into the picture too. And also, you just have the opportunity to have the Word of God on your lips yeah. in the original languages, which that's just a beautiful opportunity. Yeah. I guess we've been talking about this gearing it toward the people who might not be all that excited about taking this, you know? And we're trying to keep people from worrying about all the bad stuff. Right. But there is just a beauty that is there to embrace Mm -hmm. about reading the biblical text as it has come to us in its original languages. That's just, it's it's a privilege. And maybe that's part of why I I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to do this. Right. Um, But obviously, it's not easy. And so we don't always concentrate on that. Yeah. So one thing might be to help you do this as well would be to bring your Hebrew and or Greek Bible uh, to church with you and reading along as the pastor's now doing it. Now don't do it as in a, I'm going to check up on the pastor and make sure he's really close to the biblical languages or some kind of prideful thing on that. But it, it really reinforces the learning when you've, you maybe you don't know five of the words and, but then there's this one word that you're like, Oh wait, I know that word. And it just comes alive in another level and it reinforces this word means whatever it is. Um, and again, uh, when you won't be able to do uh, right off the bat, a whole bunch of verses, but you might be able to pick out words and at least at the very be- beginning of it, you'll be able to kind of start seeing little patterns of, you know, maybe even just acknowledging that this word is spelled like this in Hebrew or whatnot. Um, and just getting that reinforced that way can help as well. I guess the last thing I'll say is just don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't um, don't get stressed out that you're not going to sound smart. Yeah. Um, because if you don't know it, you don't know it. And yeah. it's, it's not going to do you any good to pretend like you know something when you don't. Um, always ask questions of your professor. Um, Ask questions to fellow students who who are who are getting that particular thing that you're not understanding. Yeah, and you'll and you'll progress. Yeah, because again, you don't want to get behind because it just gets worse from there. Then some tips for after you've uh, maybe you've taken your course now and you're wondering how am I going to retain that? Now that that's where a lot of people lose it is you'll hear stories from your pastor that's like I took Greek and Hebrew and a year later I could do nothing of it. But the way you maintain it is to continue that reading um, in the original languages. And, you know, you don't have to do a ton. 
the more you do, the more helpful it is. But even just a verse a day can help. Um, and, you know, if you're a pastor, you're prepping a sermon, maybe try to read the text in whatever language it is, at, lower, at least a verse or two out of the text, or just try to pick out what words you know uh, out of that text. And that's going to reinforce and help build competency. I'll say now, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm trying to read through the entirety of the Hebrew Old Testament. I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, I'm in Judges right now, and I started at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. so pretty slow. Um, but it's having like a cumulative effect. Mm. I It's not just about me drawing back on all of my grammar learning. Right. The reading continually is making me better at reading. Mm. And that was probably one of the best surprises that I've had in this process. I was thinking I'd probably have to be going back to the grammars over and over and over again. And now, frankly, I do have the ability to, to long press on a word on my phone and it'll give me the definition mm-hmm. for better or for worse. It gives me one little definition. Right. See all of our discussions before earlier in the podcast about meaning and stuff. But um, reading continually is making me a better reader. So if you keep it up and if you keep familiar with it, not only will it kind of keep the muscles loose and uh, speaking metaphor there, right? Um, but it'll also help you to improve beyond where you were. Mm-hmm. At least if you keep at it. Yeah. Then there's a couple other re- resources, and we're not getting any kind of thing from them. And I don't know if they even know we exist yet, but uh, there's, not yet. Yeah, not yet. But we're going to post this into a forum where a lot of them are. But uh, there's daily dose of Greek and daily dose of Hebrew that are really good. They They go through, usually, they go through one verse a day, although sometimes. They may go over different grammatical features or maybe how to do textual criticism or whatnot, but they'll go through a verse a day and they'll talk about everything that looks weird on that. They'll parse words, they'll give definitions, uh, maybe point out some really interesting features about it. It's just really nice. And it's like, you know, only two to five minutes usually on a lot of those videos. Yeah, they're really short. Do you have the Daily Dose of Greek app? I do not. I did not know there was an app. Yeah, I mean, if it's coming right to your phone, I mean, that's like a no-brainer. Right. That, that should be something that you could easily uh, get a hold of. I have not seen whether or not there's a daily dose of Hebrew app, mm. though. I had, I just haven't looked for it. I think I just kind of stumbled, aco- uh, stumbled across um, this one, and I just I downloaded it. So if you would like to uh, reach out to us, we would love to hear if you've got any tips or tricks Jason, you want to tell them how they can reach us? Yes, you can reach us in a lot of different ways. I think our main one right now is our Facebook page, Surviving Seminary Podcast. You can go over there and you can see links to our episodes. You can see uh, we post our our episodes there as videos uh, every time that they drop. Um, We also post there frequently, and we're pretty active there right now. So if you want to go check us out there, please like the page uh, so you can follow along with that. We also have a Twitter handle right now, which we're just kind of starting up with that line of social media, but that's at ServeSem Podcast. That's S-U-R-V-S-E-M Podcast. You can also go to our website, as we host right now our podcast episodes through Podbean, and our particular website there is survivingseminary2019.podbean.com. 
Also, if you want, you can just send us an email. And our current email address right now is survivingseminarypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can check the date on this episode, I suppose. We, we do want to get another one one of these days, but right now it's survivingseminarypodcast at gmail.com. Those are all the ways that you can get in touch with us. And re- we really hope that you would get in touch with us and let us know what you think. Um, let us know um, what we've gotten wrong. Let us know what we could do better. Also, we hope that you would subscribe to the podcast so you wouldn't miss an episode, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. So that's all for today. Thanks very much for listening, and have a good one. See you later. See you later.